is there something special about brain-mind-like phenomena that are completely different from the history of scientific logical discovery, such that they'll always be outside of our reach? And I can't understand where that belief would come from. I don't think they're out of our reach at all. I'm just saying that the coarse-grained objects we use to describe mind phenomena will not be will not feel the same way that people who like to look at eye movements and stretch reflex and even the cerebellum where they feel like they can couch their understanding of their behavioral output in terms of their circuitry and all i'm saying is if that's what you want you're not going to get it there are on the table here three positions at least one is let's call it unfairly the sort of microscopic reductionist who says it has to be as low as you can go which is what john thinks i am (laughs) but that person in the end just has the total physics envy and wants to do quantum mechanics this is brain inspired Welcome, everyone, to the second part of my conversation with David and John Krakauer. I'm Paul Middlebrooks. This second part picks up right where we left off in the first part, and I highly recommend you listen to that uh, first part to best absorb this second part. In this episode, we talk more specifically about brains and minds, how complexity thinking can help, uh, what it might look like to attain a satisfying understanding of various mental processes, and how or whether that understanding will include any account of brain processes. Uh, You'll hear my own inability to communicate what would serve as a satisfying account of the relation between brain and mind, but thinking clearly about these things is its own goal. Uh, For me, that's maybe the main goal, and I'm going to keep pushing forward until hopefully (laughs) I'll get there. Speaking with David and John is a wonderful exercise toward that goal, and the mode of thinking they execute uh, makes it feel like we're headed in the right direction. Makes me optimistic I'll get my own thinking to a satisfying place. We'll all get there, won't we? Enjoy. You know, it's interesting. I don't know, Paul, if you've uh, read the new history of neuroscience, Matthew Cobb's book, The Idea of the Brain. No, but isn't it just a list of metaphors? I, I, I've not read it, so. Yeah, but it's, it's, well, no, I think actually the scaffold for thinking, and it's very good. I, I love the, the the history part and the early present. Um, I think once it gets into current neuroscience and prediction of the future, it gets more impoverished. But I don't know whether that's Matthew Cobb or whether the field itself is sort of asymptotic. Accurate. Um, yeah. But... It is a good book. I really do recommend it. It's, it's got lots of delicious, rich stuff in it, and he's done a good job. It's not easy to synthesize all that material. But I tell you what's fascinating about it is that he has a section at the end of the book um, where he talks about the future. And it's very interesting that he begins by talking about emergence, but then drops it like a bad smell, right? It's like, well, he, I think he says something like emergence is that unsatisfactory explanation before we get to the real explanation, right? Mm. And then he moves on to where he feels like the real progress we made 
is let's get back down to the circuits and the neurons themselves. Let's study cognition in a fly where we have the sort of Sherringtonian connectivity map. And then we'll do some sort of extrapolation to cognition in humans. In other words, you see this tension in the field between not really wanting to talk about coarse graining and psychological terms and derived well, measures and, and saying, surely we can avoid that awful fate for our field <laughs> I, by yeah. going into a fly or a worm where we can have the same level of connectivity detail and intuition as we did for the stretch reflex. But now we can apply that understanding to something that we call cognition and then somehow extrapolate from that higher up the neuroaxis. In other words, you see that there's this tension that, that just won't go away. That, and, and it's like, David, it would be silly to do Navier-Stokes worrying about the details. But mind is a um, <laughs> historically, fundamentally mysterious thing because it's there, okay, so what, let me see if I can articulate my own internal struggle with this sort of mapping and you know what I want. I want some sort of, it can be course level, but I just want a way to think about the mapping between them. I don't need, it doesn't need to come from the circuit level, but it does need to connect them. And one of the things I was going to ask uh, you both about is whether complexity uh, holds promise for a connecting between these levels or if it if complexity like you just mentioned is is assigned the liberation of levels and for us to somehow be happy with understanding things at different levels without the connection no i think both no i, I no i don't think we should be happy and john and i talk about this a lot i think that um and that gets to these two kinds of emergence camps there's one group probably i'm in that's very interested in how you connect them. And there's a camp that John might be in, which says, what's the best one to use in any given level? And I mm -hmm. think that's both a, a necessary. So, I mean, the, the, for us, you know, you know, the gold standard was the derivation of, you know, the ideal gas laws in thermodynamics from statistical mechanics. So that uh, once you've got that equation, you don't have to worry about the the individual particles because it has that right. property of sufficiency, but you didn't know why. And it was, it was useful to know why. I mean, some of us want to know about that, right? The origin of levels, that's sort of what I work on. And I think that, but both are necessary. So I, I wouldn't forfeit um, one for the other. I, I hope we do get into brain mind because I have my own totally quirky ideas about that, <laughs> that, I, that I'd like to air. And, um, and I've never understood I don't know if now is appropriate, but John wants to jump in. But I would like to say a couple of things about that. Let's just go. I mean, we're we're going on our own 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 okay. course. There's there's no specific path. Okay, so I do want to talk about this because I've listening to people. I'm always amazed that they don't do the empirical thing, which is to look for prequels or precedents. And I want to mention two. And I think I don't have an answer at all, but I just want to point out an insight. You mean historical pre Yes, or, or parallel in other fields, things that look like it. Okay. Mm. Okay. And, and I sort of want to be Persian and argue for a triadic perspective. Okay. And, I, and, and it has come to the rescue of two other areas which suffered from the same problem. The first one, the one I know best, because I work on the evolution of intelligence, is evolution. And it was how do you relate 
physical matter uh, and the structure of physical matter, we'd call an adaptation to fitness. Mm. And for the longest time, God was invoked. <laughs> In other words, it was impossible. I mean, there's no way to explain the structure of matter uh, in its relation to function other than invoking an omniscient, omnipotent being. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Darwin came to the rescue by introducing a third principle, which was natural selection. And natural selection mediated the interaction between physical matter and fitness or replication or success. Okay. Hardware and software. Okay. Hardware, physical matter, right? does functional things in the world. It adds numbers together, it allows you to type, it allows us to have this conversation online. And what mediates them is the algorithm. Algorithms configure, or the operating system, configure physical matter to allow them to be functional. Now, David Marr sort of was kind of getting there when he recognized the three levels, right? The sort of physical level, the functional level, and the algorithmic level. But he didn't talk about it in the Percy in terms of threeness as the resolving level. And you'll see that they have two things in common, right? So their third party means of configuring the matter to achieve the function, right? So natural selection is not present in the organism, it's present in the environment. The programmer is not present in the machine, but in the environment. And so I just want to say, I don't think mind emerges from brain. Mind emergently is engineered by an environment. And, and that's the thing that I've always found missing in the mind-brain is the third part, which is I, I think it's pointless to talk about mind without talking about environment in the same way that in evolution you couldn't talk about adaptation and fitness without talking about selection. And I find that quite promising as an avenue. I don't know how it would play out. Is this like a Wittgensteinian... Uh, you must have someone to speak to, else you can't think? Somewhat. Actually, it's interesting, a little private language issue. It is somewhat related. His was much more along the lines of the scandal of induction, mm -hmm. right? Just, I don't know what I'm pointing at. Um, but I do think it's social, but not social in the sense of human to human, but the ecological sense of social to environment. And uh, I don't know what John thinks about that or you think about that, but that's the bit that I've seen missing from a lot of the philosophy of mind. I, it's such a huge area, right? You know, cultural production of mind, embodiment, environment. Um, I, I, I definitely agree that the computation might be distributed far more than you think. But I do, I, I, I do feel like that we have to worry about the brain fundamentally when it comes to the most impressive cognitive feats that we see, for example, prospective memory that has been where you can make a cup of coffee with interruptions. You know where you are in the sequence. You know the sequence you have to go through to get an envelope and a stamp and then put, and then put the letter in the envelope and then you put the stamp on the envelope and then you walk from the post office and you put it in the post box. I know this sounds very old-fashioned, but these abilities are, are, are very much associated with the prefrontal cortex. You know, Steve Wise and Richard Parsing have spoken about the fact that the agranular prefrontal cortex only exists in primates, right? And they talk about one-shot learning and prospective memory and all the kinds of cognitive operations and the ability to model the world 
in a very elaborate way that you could see in, in, in primates. So in other words, even if it's true that there are all these, I mean, Darwin in the Matthew Cobb book, uh, Matthew Cobb says about Darwin that he, he wasn't really interested in how the brain and the mind connected. He actually admitted that, but he wanted to know how you could have gotten there gradually, right, through uh, evolution, mm-hmm. right? Darwin actually deliberate, explicitly tabled how you got mind from brain, but he just said you have to get it from there because the evolution has to operate on physical stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, but so in other words, I, I would say all this embodiment stuff and all this, it's different. I'm just saying it doesn't preclude the fact that if we're going to really understand things like cognition as we define it, we're going to have to understand the prefrontal cortex. Well, let me just, it's a very interesting example that just to draw your mole example to your brain example. So for you, it was sufficient. You didn't want to talk about the genetics or the musculature of the mole limb. Um, you just wanted to talk about selection pressures, whereas developmental geneticists would say to you, no, you have to talk about the development of those limbs and, and, and the conserved structures in these you know, regulatory kernels. And you're doing the same for the brain. And I think you're right that both are required. Just to be clear, just for the analogy, I would say that the prefrontal cortex, what it, what it does, depending on how you coarse grain it, is like the claws, the fur, and the snout on the mole, right? That if And there are theories that have been given as to why one-shot learning and other such things had to be done on sparse savannas where you just wouldn't have a chance to learn slowly. Associative learning would have just, you die, right? So you have to come up with a way to quickly learn and flexibly make choices. And so I just think in the end, we're going to have to describe that behavior have a computational theory of that behavior, and then just get confirmation, I think, through correlation with properties of the prefrontal cortex. We're never going to look at all those millions of connections in prefrontal cortex and go, ah, one-shot learning, prospective memory. You're just not going to derive it anywhere than from, more than from a deep neural net. You're going to work out what it's doing. But I think it will have some confirmatory role about your algorithmic explanation for how you do those cognitive operations. No, I, I think I agree with all of that. I'm just saying that, um, again, just by analogy, that the dualities of matter and fitness and hardware and software, which actually have the same qualities, it's like, well, how does software work exactly? Um, are resolved by introducing the third element, the environment. And it's hard for me to imagine a concept of mind without using, and it doesn't, it's not about so much embodiment or, but without using environmental social concepts. That's the sense in which I'm saying that you need to introduce this third element to bridge the two. So it's not environment as constraint and as an organizing principle. No, it's it's simply that it's actually the selection principle. I mean, it's the way in which you mind, in some sense, programs brain. Right? It's sort of you you the there has to be something that mediates causally that interaction. But that just seems to me very similar to the Lily Crap and Curding view that we just want to know 
what was operating on the network to get it to its final consolidated performance, it, it, it doesn't, I don't see how what you're saying is going to get us to say, I understand how prospective memory works. I, I understand how these, you know, ability to, to task switch work. No, it doesn't. It doesn't help with that at all. It, I, I, I agree with that. It's a different point. It's just, I don't think the word, how does mind emerge from brain is, is, is complete. That's all I'm saying. It's just not a meaningful sentence to me without the third element. But you're right. Yeah. Do you think that you would have detractors of that view? It's, it's almost tautological, right? Because you, you have to have environment. Well, it's odd that people say it so often, isn't it? I agree. I mean, it's hard to imagine that they would be. But people use it all the time. How does mind emerge from brain? And all I'm saying is I don't find that a meaningful statement. Well, they, they, but they do. I mean, I think that, that David, that, 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 that I think I don't, I mean, they want there to be just like, how do you get stretch, stretch reflex behavior from a circuit? In other words, you see a neurologist bang on someone's tendon and the arm moves or the knee moves. And they want to go, how did that movement arise from spinal tissue? And people will then say, well, there are these neurons which connect. And I think what they mean is that they want, how does the organization of parts through their interaction <laughs> lead to a behavior? And in this case, they want the parts to be neurons and their configuration to be their connectivity into a circuit. And they want that configuration of connectivity through the parts to lead to the behavior. And they, I know, want, I know. And they want to have an explanation like that all the way up to what the prefrontal cortex might do. I've offered a, a compromise by saying that if you think about it as trajectory through state spaces derived from millions of neurons through some sort of dimensionality reduction that you can visualize like a Feynman diagram, that you can have a functional flavored explanation that uses words and uses a neurally derived object. And that is about as good as it's ever going to get. If you want to do it in terms of connectivity, and you could argue that the Neo-Sherringtonian project of people like Olaf Spawns is really to use connectivity metrics between macroscopic areas, the way that Sherrington talked about neurons connecting in a reflex arc, it's just not going to work in my view. No, and again, so everything you just said, I agree with. I think I'm addressing a slightly different question. Um, so no one says, how does software emerge from hardware? No one says that. But if you, um, if you had hardware and you shocked a particular part of it and the software told you <laughs> that it just had an out-of-body experience or you, exactly. know, or you shocked a, a part of it and the software made an eye movement and said, I intended to make that eye movement because it experienced an eye movement or a phosphine or something that we consider mind process. Where does the but that's environment... Exactly the, but that's exactly the point, Paul, that you're right. That's exactly what would happen, right? If you perturbed the hardware, you perturbed the software. That's exactly right. Um, but we don't use that language that software is emergent from hardware because we know how we make software and we know how we make hardware and we know how programming works. And that's, I guess, what I'm saying, that um, that language doesn't feel correct because there's a missing third element. And the question I guess I'm asking is that the causal efficacy of the environment in mediating mind-brain, uh, would it lead to a similar change of language? 
it wouldn't feel right to say it, it does it emerge from mechanism, even though John's narrative just now sounds totally reasonable at this point in time. I mean, I agree with that. But that we're also living in the age of the com- brain computer metaphor. This is the most recent metaphor. <laughs> I don't think computer. it's a metaphor. People have said this to me before. I, I also disagree with it entirely. I, 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 I don't think that's the right point. I think that what it's interesting, by the way, it's an interest of mine. What computers do that's so interesting, I think, and that's interesting partly because we built them, is that they show how physical matter can give rise to properties like teleology, agency, and function. And it's the first, mm, one of the first significant devices in the history of human beings that has those properties. And so I don't mind if the steam engine was an earlier metaphor for some element of agency, right? It's just that the computer has it in spades. And so it's a a useful one. I don't think calling something a metaphor discredits it because the computer does possess so many of these properties we care about. But you're mapping it on to hardware and software, and I don't know that that is the correct mapping. Sure, but that that may be true. A lot of people have said that that's incorrect in so much that they're mixed inextricably in a biological tissue right. as they are in the machine, as they are in a computer. <laughs> right. But, 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 you, but I also get a little annoyed when people conflate computational with computer. Yeah. that's right. Right. In, other right. words, in other words, of course, and I agree with Gary Marcus makes a very strong statement, something about this, which is cognition is computation over representations. And I just don't know. Now you can be in the camp of extreme embodiment or like Paul Chizek, who's in denial about cognition and just tries to find it, you know, and, and all those people who just want to somehow tuck it away and deny it and turn it into sort of some sensory motor affordance. I mean, like, I think you had, um, is it Mike Rascola on your show? Yeah, Michael Rascola. Yeah, very smart guy. And I agree with him that any attempt to do away with representation is an utter failure, Right. And so once you accept that you have to represent things, and we can have a discussion about what that means, David and I have talked about that a lot, and you just say that you compute over representation, that is, you take symbols and you operate on those symbols and change them. That have semantic content. You know, and yes, numbers are semantic, numerals are syntactic, right? And I, I just don't know how else you can think about it, right? You operate over representations and you transform them okay but it's interesting to point out just to both of you that these terms you're using <laughs> representations that are transformed or come out of log- okay <laughs> just come out of logic yeah right. and um which is basically all we're talking about we talk about computers don't get carried away with a particular hardware device that we're typing on right uh what a computational device at least in the turing sense has to do with right is do you have sufficient input, right? Do you have the appropriate sequence of transformations of physical matter to arrive at an answer that's correct in finite time? And that's true if I'm reaching for an orange, if I'm, you know, there's a much more general concept of what we mean by computation. It shouldn't be confused with the particular implement that we happen to be operating on today. And I also think there's something that I struggle with, but I think is fundamental to all this, is there's probably an ontological reason. I mean, the other nice thing about the Matthew Cobb book is he just shows you that very thoughtful people going back to the Greeks and onwards were worried about the mind-brain divide. They were never worried about the 
the equivalent divides in their legs or their arms, right? In other words, there was always a sense that there was something that had to be Lord Adrian versus Kenneth Craig. They had this debate. So there's the, the sophistication of the discussion of the difference has not increased. I, I think the only real insight is that algorithms are by definition substrate independent. Okay. That's, that's what an algorithm is. It's a series of steps mm-hmm. that, that abstract away from how they're physically instantiated. An abacus, a calculator, your fingers, Right. Software. Right. But notice, again, it's interesting that the one concrete, tangible example we have of the interface between the logical, Im- seemingly immaterial, and the material is that one. I think John's absolutely right. So when we talk about algorithms, they have precisely that property that we're trying to pursue. It's not that hardware is brain, software is mind, not at all. It's just that they give us a vocabulary and a set of fairly well understood real physical devices that have some of the properties that we're pursuing. And and the interesting thing is, is that the more mind-like the words you use, the more mind phenomena you care about, Paul, the more substrate independent and algorithmic you can sound right in other words it's it, you're not going to write a poem or a story about the stretch reflex and you're not going to necessarily come up with a substrate independent description of the stretch reflex anymore but the more complex the behavior becomes the more one can begin to use vocabulary that floats free of the substrate Right? It's back to what we were talking about before. Why is that? Why is it that you can get more and more free of the actual substrate and more algorithmic, the more cognitive and mind-like you become? One answer to that is our cognitive limitations. Mm. No, because we actually do quite a good job, I'm just like William James did. I'm just saying you, you say that because you'd like to have a neural connectivity story about it. I mean, this, this, this cognitive limitation thing is tricky, right? Um, and certainly in relation to this question, you know, are we smart enough to be able to understand what mind is, et cetera? And it's, again, I just want to, I was thinking in terms of empirical precedent, right? It's important to point out that the example I gave for functional states of matter was not resolved until the 19th century. Okay, that's quite recent. So there's a temporal nature of limit, right? Einstein's theory of general relativity worked out in 1915. We didn't understand the nature of space-time until the early 20th century. And Einstein couldn't have done it without Riemann, which happened in the 1850s. So there is a temporal aspect of this. So that's very important. The question is, is there an absolute, right? Is there something special about Mm. brain-mind-like phenomena that are completely different from the history of scientific logical discovery, such that they'll always be outside of our reach. And I can't understand where that belief would come from. I don't think they're out of our reach at all. I'm just saying that the coarse-grained objects we use to describe mind phenomena will not be, will not feel the same way that people who like to look at eye movements and stretch reflex and even the cerebellum where they feel like they can couch their understanding of their behavioral output in terms of their circuitry, 
And all mm-hmm. I'm saying is that if that's what you want, you're not going to get it. Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I, I think that might be right as well. But I wonder if there is a happy medium where going back to, um, and I don't mean to perseverate on this, but you know, just from a very selfish standpoint, I still would like a mapping. It doesn't have to, I don't have to map it onto the circuit, but I want just a way of formulating a question. You know, it's there, interesting because, though, Paul, let me just, it's mm-hmm. interesting though. Do you feel that way about the concepts of temperature and heat? Well, I was going to say, you said, um, now that we understand space and time, and I don't know that we understand space <laughs> and time yet. Right. Right. We did. Uh, we, uh, no, we, we, t- we have a better explanation. Yes, but let me just, that's absolutely true. I think all of these theories are very approximate and they get better and better. I, but I just want to get at that point of, uh, that you make about, I, I guess we'd have to call this something like satisfiability or something, which is, which you want this molecular. And I, I'm just curious because I do too. I'm, I'm the person who's interested in mappings. Um, but it is interesting that do, I want to just ask you, is this a general feeling you have or is it special for mind brain? Because is it important to you that there is a statistical mechanical theory that explains bulk average properties of molecules and their energy that allows you to use concepts like temperature and pressure and heat? Does it matter to you? So sorry, does does it matter uh, that I use the coarse grained explanation of what heat is to perform work? Is that the, sorry, is that the question? Yeah, I think that it's, again, the sort of mediating between you and John's position on this, which is that we now know, of course, that there is such a connection, and it's very important, um, that justifies, in some sense, the higher level theory. Mm-hmm. But for most people doing work, they're quite happy to deploy the high level theory and telling them there's one errant molecule in a room <laughs> it doesn't do it for them. It doesn't make much difference. Yes, yeah, I think, and this, I guess that's what I'm after. It, it is. Yeah. Is it? Do we feel once that the, you know, that renormalization has been done, right, that we can dispense with the micro? I mean, and, and let me give you an example, Paul. I think you know, I, I did a lot of reading on the sort of the philosophy and the history of the action potential. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting that in. Um, What's his name? He wrote that history of neurology in the 1950s. Um, ugh, I'm blanking. Shouldn't have had that glass of red wine. But anyway, <laughs> at one point he says that the action potential was a huge advance that would help us understand how the brain right. works. Okay. You're, you now, hate the reduction. Yeah. No, 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 no. But I find those kind of statements fascinating yeah. because what they do is they take a very useful horizontal piece of work that locally describes transmission and then makes this huge vertical claim for it, okay? And what I'm saying is, is I can't decide whether you're saying you'd like the mapping is just because the whole field wants to always have a vertical claim for horizontal work. And, you know, in the history of the action potential, you know, in 1952, when that paper was published, they didn't know about ion channels. They just mm-hmm. knew that there were sort of voltage-sensitive changes in permeability of the membrane. And right. we could write out an equation for propagation of the action potential. Now, if you were to still explain to someone how an action potential works, you wouldn't start describing the details of the ion channel subunits. It depends on what level you're explaining, if you, correct? To, if you just wanted to explain the action potential propagation, 
I can assure you, you will not yeah. write a sentence where you include the Iron Channel composition. Here's another one. So Here's I, another I, I, I one. Just to, I just want to finish this. So in other words, it's nice to know that the what, the reason why you have permeability changes is due to the existence of ion channels. It's nice to know that there's something there doing it. But to actually explain how you get the action potential propagating, you don't need to know that detail. So in other words, I, when you ask your question, you have to ask it in two ways. Does that detail simply give you solace that there's a foundation upon which this abstraction is built? Or does it actually add substantively to the sentence of understanding that you're going to utter when it comes to the action potential? Yeah, I'm, I'll give you say, a, I'm going to say to you, the answer, Paul, is no. Here's an example. I disagree. Here's a, okay, go ahead. You know, that's good. It's good. Here's, an, here's another example. It, I think it, to, I want to be, I hate to be in the middle. I'm such an like this, but I think I love I have getting immediate... piled on by the crack hours. This is no, great. you're not, because I'm sort of somewhere <laughs> between you and John on this, which really annoys me. I want to be more extreme than both of you. But it's uh, the natural selection is a good example. So when Darwin formulated the theory, he had this nutty theory of genetics. He had the theory of pan genes, and it was based essentially on a fluid metaphor. It was continuous. Mm. It's called blending inheritance, and. It didn't in any way, his completely erroneous theory of how inheritance works, by the way, completely erroneous, um, compromise the integrity of his higher level selection theory. Yeah. And of course, during the modern synthesis, people like Wright and Haldane came along and said, you know, it doesn't work, man. Blending inheritance will not work. It has produced this kind of average quantity in the world. And they then reconciled the theory with Mendel's contributions, which are particulate and so on. And now, two points to make. At the level of organisms, it made absolutely no difference. It didn't compromise. The theory, Darwin's theory, was not changed by Wright and Haldane. What they did is reconcile genetics with the theory. And the theory of population genetics, which tries to explain the distribution of genes using natural selection, does have to have both. That's critical, right? Mm. So if the object under analysis is the gene, of course. But at the phenotypic level, sometimes called the phenotypic gambit, you can kind of get away with it, but ignoring it. And game theory, evolutionary game theory, doesn't have any genetics in it. So it's worth bearing in mind, it's very level dependent in terms of what you should and should not include. And, 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 and I think that the mistake that is made all the time is confirmatory reconciling facts do not figure in the explanation. And those get collapsed right? And, and, and the, the existence of ion channels is a nice confirmation and verification. It may help you poison someone, but it doesn't change the qualitative nature of the way you think about the propagation of an action potential. You just need to know about varying voltages and capacitance. Do you see? And, and so in other words, when you ask your question, Wait, what's the question? I've forgotten the question now. <laughs> we, we all have. That's the joy of it all. The question is, is you want there to be some mapping between presumably structures and circuits and mind phenomena. And I'm just saying that I don't always have an intuition why that mapping between level N minus one and level N is going to qualitatively change the intuitive nature of the explanation you construct at level N. My bet is that there is a in 
plus one over two level between these two, that is satisfactory. I mean, so this, we can go back to David's um, question about understanding uh, heat versus the molecular collection of molecules. And and that actually, so so I'm fine with that. I can I can use heat and I don't need to understand the molecules to use the heat. And, but I, but I also wonder because, I mean, I don't understand heat at, you know, a core level, but I use it a lot. And so I have a sense that I understand it and I don't need to explain the molecules to use it because it's, I can always use it the same way. And I can take, you know, there, there, you know, I can take the, um, uh, the explanation. I can take that mapping and think, okay, I'm satisfied with that without well, being an expert. But do you think, do you think, do you think that if you, if I, if I asked you that the, the, the dog chased the cat, right? And I said, do you understand what I said? And you went, yes, I know what that means. And then I said, but do you understand the particular syntactic structure of English that tends to be subject, verb, object? And did you know that there's this universal feature? These are syntactical rules of English. And I said, so you don't really understand the dog chased the cat as well as I do, because I'm a linguist who can talk about syntax and objects and subjects and verbs. It would be a very odd thing for me to say, right? It's, it's not, I know extra facts about language and I can yeah. use, but to say that you would understand the dog chased the cat better if you were a linguist would be a very odd thing. And that's what you seem to be forced to adhere to. So I actually, uh, we can have a running bet. I believe, <laughs> and I don't know that we'll get, I kind of doubt that we'll get there in my lifetime, but I believe that there is not some sort of one-to-one -one correspondence where I can look at a circuit and the and know the 1,250,000 neurons firing in this particular pattern corresponds to the feeling of love or something. I don't think that there's going to be that mapping. That's not what I'm looking for. And I think you're misconstruing my desire as that, as like mapping onto the physical substrate. What I'm betting on, and I believe that will there will be described one day, is in the in-between way well, to at least I formulate you, the question. I, I gave you that. I gave you. I told you about trajectories and state spaces, dynamical. Well, that, this goes exactly back I, to that. I, I and, gave you but, that. But that's a usage case. And I, but that hasn't happened in mind yet. I mean, it's well, that's happened looking at state trajectories. There's, well, there are people who are coming up with similar kind of dynamical systems view of of, of, of prefrontal cortex and beginning to talk in that way. Uh, so, in other words, it wouldn't. It's so far you're right. It's been sort of convolutional neural networks for vision and recurrent neural networks for motor cortex. But I have a feeling. That, you know, there are people like Xiaoxing Wang and others who are beginning to worry about prefrontal cortex. And so it may well be that you'll have an object that is a mixture of psychological language and neural dynamics that would satisfy you. I want to add something else to this conversation now, which is functionalism uh -oh. and de right. degeneracy. Because yeah. I think in complex systems, it's right. Sorry, wait. So I just um, in complex systems, functionalism yeah, it's correct is correct. To have, no, not correct. It's right to have this debate because I, I feel that even if you adhere to, and I'm just going to caricature this as Paul versus John here, right? Yeah, I, don't, right. I don't think it's fair to say because, but nevertheless, um, there's another one which is completely orthogonal to this. So 
if you think about telescopes, mm. right, there are radio telescopes and there are optical telescopes. If you think about cars, there are electrical cars and there are cars that use the combustion engine. They are not at all the same, right? Not at mm. all. Uh, they use completely different well, principles. Well, they achieve. Wait one second, John. That's the moles. Wait a second, wait a second. Yep. They, they achieve the same objective. So, um, functionalism. So now if we're talking about uh, mind phenomena, I think there's an argument that deep neural networks, which have absolutely nothing to do with brain, I mean, really nothing, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly not at the material level, not at the level of mechanism, the geometric topological correspondence is spurious, uh, maybe in some cases, maybe it, it isn't. I think um, we can all agree on that. Right, we probably agree on that, although there might be some cases are probably going to give us much deeper insights into mind than neuroscience. And we haven't talked about that. So that's not about mind emerging from brain matter. That's mind emerging from something completely different. But I mean, it, but, it, but, but it follows. I mean, the thing is, David, is if you believe in terms of psychological algorithmic uh, descriptions of mind phenomena, it kind of follows that you're, you could get them in some other way. Now, there are Absolutely. some people who say, no, the, the one way that, you know, again, because I'm actually used to be, and I think Paul knows this, you know, m- very much default functionalist, but I'm willing to believe now that you can have fu- what, what David Barak and I are calling neurofunctional explanations. They're functional explanatory objects with neural flavor, right? Yeah, that you can have them both, Okay. So in other words, I, I, I think that the question is, is whether to have that neurofunctional object, you have to have glia, for example. Mm-hmm. See, w- what if it turns out that even though the explanatory object is quite abstract and it's a dynamical system plus words, but what if actually the, uh, the tissue itself has properties that you need that go beyond neural populations and abstractions of connections, vessels, glia, local field potentials, effaptic transmission. In other words, it may, it may be that the dynamical object that I, you end up coming up with can only be built out of biological tissue. David, do, does this accord with your view of the environment playing an interactive part in this, or is it a separate issue? I think it's a separate issue. I, okay. I don't agree with John. And I can't really think of, because of universality, I can't really think of any, anything like it. Um, and the idea, as I understand it, is that there's something super special about molecules, which mean that functions which are very divorced from them, that operate at very aggregate coarse-grained levels, are actually dependent on them. So it's sort of getting your, it is what you want, Paul, it's having your cake and eating it theory. But I don't quite know how that could work. I'm not aware of any such physical system. I mean, to, just so I understand it, you're saying that you think that if I come up with some neurofunctional object, yeah. by definition, you should be able to swap out the constituents. Exactly. Yeah, in strong functionalist language, yes. Yes, I think so. I don't but see what, what's what, special. Just mm-hmm. to mediate between you two then. Uh, so, John, I, I I tend toward this now as well, um, that there there may be, you know, something that is you – know, and this goes back to, like, the, the critical point of operation and what it takes to be in that area of operation. And it could take something as – I don't want to say complex because we're talking about complexity, but as – massively intertwined and evolved over such a long period of time to sit at that right state. It might take 
the metabolism and the structure. I don't know. It don't doesn't, though. Doesn't, Paul. So uh, I'm someone who's worked on critical points. Well, not, not not for just critical points, but I mean, something like mind, right? Well, so but be there's careful. lots of things that operate at critical points that aren't mind. Well, that's a critical insight, right? Which is, excuse the pun, which is yeah. that this is precisely the point. Um, people got very excited about things like so heavy tails, right? And, yeah, yeah. and then they realized that, well, actually, we have now a central limit theorem for that too. And so that's not a surprise. Critical points got people excited rightly and people like John Begg and others who've been arguing for the brain being biocritical point. But now we know, of course, that local area networks are biocritical point and social systems are biocritical point. And in fact, everything that's evolved is biocritical point. Small world and critical point. Right. And so actually, I don't think that these features, they are fascinating, by the way, um, but I don't think they are the tool that allows us to distinguish between, you know, mind-brain-like phenomena and other complex phenomena. They're just too ubiquitous. So I, I think criticality is a bit of a red herring. Moreover, uh, it's now been shown that uh, deep neural networks are nowhere near critical points, right, which have many of the characteristics that people are interested in, mind are interested in. Mm -hmm. And there's a, you can actually contrive statistical models where they are, but none of the learned, trained ones are. So... Um, I, mean, I view that as you know. what I was saying is actually it's not true. So far, you know, there's been no successful, really cognitive general AI achievement. And the, you know, and as I was saying, Jeff Hinton says, you know, that's what the last thing we're going to get. And all well, I'm saying, what does he know? Yeah. I'm now, the, 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 <laughs> the question is, what what is the impediment? Is it architecture? Is it not knowing the right algorithms? Or is there something that you can currently make with biological tissue that obviously by definition, I'm not trying to say that you couldn't abstract away an object that behaves like the objects that currently only neural tissue can make. But as long once we work out what it's made, what that object looks like, we'll be able to make it in another way. I think you seem to be saying that by definition, if you can abstract to an algorithmic level, if you can come up with a coarse grain description, by definition, it should be made out of different, it should be duplicable with a different substance. Is that yeah, I do, be I do believe that. I, I, not to, I think your first part of your argument, I think I share, which is that we're just not sufficiently clever engineers, right, to know how to do that. And, um, We've met, we're, we're still missing something. Missing a can, lot. Can I ask you guys, that, so, mm. kind of a ridiculous question, but a, a break from the seriousness maybe. But, th but this, I, I just had the other day this daydream where I imagined a functionalist future where we all accept functionalism. We build powerful AI and we accept because of their predictive ability, we accept that they uh, have better purchase on our own interests. And it seems to be, and we allow ourselves to be governed by their mm -hmm. organization. We already, but we already are, Paul. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> but let's say it's more concrete and more, I mean, that's that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but but okay, let's say everyone, anyway, the, the, the dystopian vision I had was where we accept a functionalist account. Everything that they are doing makes it seem as this, now I just realized this is like the terrible zombie uh, analogy, but, but it seems... You know, we interact with them. You know, they're, they're they're robots. Whatever, you know, whatever. Pick your favorite television show, and we 
we allow for the fact that we assume they have consciousness and mind and on our level, whatever that means. Um, and, and so we could be in a place where we're actually giving ourselves up to the organizational principles of these things that we functionally define as having minds, but in reality, there's, you know, there's, it's vacant. There's nothing there. I just think, it's, I, I think that's completely impossible. That's, a, that's an example of giving an example. It just doesn't make any sense on its face. I know. I just, I realized it's the zombie I, thing. I, I, with mind, you know, just like when uh, Lake and Gershman and Tenenbaum wrote their BBS paper on what you, what would be needed to have general AI. Right. And they basically come up with a set of behavioral yes. criteria, you know, and it got, it's, it's very similar to arguments. And I wouldn't dare go there with David here about what life is, you know, do you get, is it a, a different, a defined property or is it a cluster of properties or whatever? But I think that if you had your tick box, your checklist, as they had in their BBS article about what would be necessary, intuitive sociality, uh, uh intuitive physics, uh, you know, modeling of the world rather than classifying it, one-shot learning, you know, extrapolation, planning. I mean, whatever their list entails. I think that was four out of five or yeah, so, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, they, um, and you had these robots that did that. They have mind as far as I'm concerned. Right, so we're agreeing then. We're agreeing. I think there's this very, there's this interesting question, I think. I'll give another example from computing, which I'm not sure it's a good one or not, but... So it might be that one day there's a certain class of computational problem that can be solved by a quantum computer. So, right, so there are problems now that we might call MP-complete. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is true or not. Or at least extremely difficult to compute in any reasonable amount of time that a quantum computer could compute in our lifetime. And that would be a good example, I think, of John's position where this class of function which you could describe hardware independently, simply couldn't be realized in anything that had this property of entanglement and spooky action at a distance and massive parallelism that comes out of the quantum domain. So that is perhaps an example of where the physicality mm. imposes constraints on what's realizable in the logical space. But as far as I'm concerned, unless you believe as Penrose does, that this applies to mind-brain, which it might, I don't know, everything we're talking about is classical. So then I'm not aware of any fundamental physical limitation that's analogous in, in mind-brain. So I, I, that's why I think I'm a functionalist. Does, um, does timing matter? Does speed of information processing matter? Because you could have the exact same structure and do it very slowly. Would, is there a role? Because I know you're very interested in time, and that's part yeah. of the complexity story as well, David. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, how do you, you know, like... Um, John mentioned I had Uri Hassan on, and he talks about at different hierarchical levels in the brain operate on different timescales, seem to map on operating uh, onto different timescales. And I thought, well, you know, there could be something to that. And But you know, the, the more recurrent something is, it could operate on a slower dynamical timescale. And, and somehow that is a maps onto cognitive processing. But but I wonder if if you think of time that way as well in the information processing and computation yeah, yeah. I, i've i have a i've had a much more modest approach to time scales in computation so i've worked a lot on molecular computation molecular information processing where time is exploited so the half-life of a molecule is actually part of your yes 
box of tricks, right? You can use that to solve problems. You can you can actually make a, a frequency decoder by exploiting relative decay times. And so I'm kind of into that ingenuity of messing with time scales. Um, and clearly life is all about that, right? It's just been right. tinkering from the beginning with these properties of molecules and all of these time scales. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying it has to be done that way. And so, you know, when human beings play chess, you know, we have a brain with all these time scales in it, right? With the time scale of, you know, synaptic chemistry and the time scales of and so on. Um, but, you know, AlphaGo works at equilibrium, right? I mean, right. once it's been trained, it's, it's basically there is no time scale, right? Um, time's gone. So we do know that you can solve complicated problems with no temporal dynamics that are interesting. So I don't know, but at the scales that I care about things often, it matters a lot. Does it matter for mind? For well, mind, I mean, again, um, timed uh, hierarchical systems, as you go up the hierarchy, they operate more slowly on, on bigger yes. objects. I mean, that, that's the whole point of a hierarchical system is the time horizons you operate on go up as you go up the hierarchy. So, you know, you, you could argue that when you have, when you are worrying about where you're going to college in a few years time versus your stretch reflex, those are just years versus seconds. Does that map onto our experience though? What do you mean? Mental experience, do, do, you know, our sense of time and um, the rate at which we are thinking, right? So that so this is this mapping from brains to mind that I want. <laughs> I think it does matter. It's interesting you say this as a paper that um, Jeffrey West and I have been thinking about writing for years, which we never will. I, I, I don't know, maybe I don't know. Um, which is this, which is kind of interesting, right? So you can say, you know, Jeffrey has this very nice result, which is that smaller organisms have higher heart beat rates. We know that's not his result. But uh, if you rescale things according to the allometric theory, the total number of heartbeats in a lifespan is more or less invariant. Mm -hmm. so it's a bit like a photon being massless. This thing pops out, which is quite surprising, right? So a very tiny organism just beats much more quickly than us and lives a shorter time. And we beat slowly and live a longer time. But it turns out that all sums up to the same number of heartbeats, which is kind of a shocking result, but falls out of the theory. And the question we've been discussing is, maybe we, there are similar invariances with respect to thought that a mayfly or something that seems from our perspective to live only a few days actually thinks it lives 100 years, right? From the mayfly's perspective, it feels the same. Well, I mean, there's some evidence, you know, in, from Parkinson disease, Right, you know, again, Oliver Sacks talked a lot about these patients in awakenings. There's, he tells a funny story where somebody, um, he sees somebody like this in the waiting area, and he asks them, what are you doing? I said, I, was, I think I was going to scratch or pick my nose. Right, and basically he just caught him in this extremely drawn out. But the, the point has been made that they don't feel that they're taking forever to pick their nose, right? So maybe your subjective experience of time does relate in some way to the speed of your physiology. Right. So that exactly, that's the question. So in the case of heartbeats, it's a very simple calculation, by the right. way. Right. But we would to do this properly for thought. The way we have to do it is we have to calculate 
you know, distances between neurons, how quickly an impulse is propagated, etc., to see whether or not effectively, as John just pointed out, the sensation, the subjective sensation of time was an invariant that falls out of allometry. We're kind of cool and useless. There has been work on, <laughs> on cooling, you know, cooling, cooling nuclei, cooling the brain. Maybe it's looking at the speed of computations with, with, with cooling. But you might not get, right. so you guys are talking about synaptic transmission rates, and it might be more of a recurrence architectural feature, you know, circuit-to-circuit circuit level. True. But I, but I think that what's great about this conversation, if I may say, is that your consistent requirement for something, I, I think, I don't know whether it's the wrong question. In other words, that mind and brain will always have their separate vocabularies and their separate mm -hmm. conceptual frameworks that do, and, and they, and we simply have to feel reassured, like David saying, talk about temperature, talk about volume, talk about pressure. It's better to talk about weather prediction with those terms and just feel reassured that it's consistent with statistical mechanics. And I wonder whether the only way that we're going to get some neural information into our functionalist explanations is that they'll look a little bit like a dynamical system is my guess. I mean, I'm beginning to be willing to believe that we might be, we, we might be able to think we might have a Feynman diagram way of thinking about things about mind, which are very heavily derived from neural data. And David Barak, as I said, who I'm working with has convinced me that maybe we would at least be happy with neurofunctional objects, not functional ones. So in other words, you don't have to be a pure functionalist. I mean, functionalism has two meanings. One is you think just in terms of processes rather than processors. The, the strong version of functioning is David's one, which is that there should be many ways to implement it that isn't wedded to one physical implementational instantiation. But I don't think you're necessarily wanting that. I think you'd be happy if you just had something in the explanation you gave to people that had something that was neurally derived in the explanation, <laughs> right? That just didn't just use psychological words. And I'm actually, I'm being very serious. Maybe we've reached a point where we'll have not just psychological functional words, we'll have neurally derived objects in the sentence, just like we have the motor neuron in the stretch reflex sentence. I, I, I'm really not sure whether that would count as what we call in the paper, a first level explainer. Mm. Right. It's interesting. I, 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 obviously here at SFI, there were phases where people became very enamored of dynamical systems. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we're over that a little bit. And I think right. that the, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure this is exactly the same thing, but I'll give an example. It's an argument I had at a meeting at Harvard with George Whitesides, and we were talking about the merits of information theory versus dynamics. And he works in, in, in nanobiology and an extraordinary engineer and, and cell biologist. And he hated information theory. And I think I had a similar uh, argument at the Salk Institute with, I don't know if it was Sutton about this. It might have been. Uh, people like dynamical systems because it feels closer to the matter. You know, it's got that quality about it. And George felt that, why do you need information theory? It's just a secondary imposition 
that's observer-dependent, just describe it all in terms of the dynamics, these functional concepts that you are imposing are useless. The system isn't doing anything. It's just colliding. It's just obeying Newton's laws. And so dynamical systems are the right way to describe it. So it's a kind of a weird reductionism that's not microscopic reductionism. It's the kind that John is describing. But the point about dynamical systems of the kind that we study is you can't always write a Hamiltonian. You can't always write an energy function down. So you don't always have an action principle. So you can't always say, this is what the system is minimizing. That's the point to which it is tending. And what Shannon gave us was a framework where we could actually write down mm. uh, variational principles on top of dynamical systems. So you can say, as a Bialek will do, he'll say that dynamical system is maximizing mutual information. Or Tishby will say that dynamical si is implementing the information bottleneck or what have you. And so you need this language to give you the variational architecture, that is the optimization language, but which you don't do you, have in but, dynamics. But, but, but why do you, in other words, again, when we use narrative or words like William James did, yes. there's no formalism attached to it, but you're still doing understanding work. I mean, you look at Eve Marder's incredible work on the stomatogastric ganglion, right, where she shows unbelievable redundancy in what the constituent neurons do but there's an invariance at the level of the pattern. Yeah. And the pattern, and you know, Eric Smith, your very own Eric Smith, has made a beautiful case for ecosystems and in physics that you should treat the pattern as the entity of explanation rather yeah. than its component processes. So when you look at Eve Marder's work, it's the pattern generated by a lot of swapping out that you can do at the level of the, so the invariance isn't at the level of the components. No, I don't there think is, we're, so, so in other words, yes. why can't we just, all, all I was saying is if there was a neural pattern language. No, I know. I know what you're saying. Why, Look, isn't, I, why I, isn't that okay? But, yes. No, there's nothing. That's great. I'm not, I just want to make a point here that um, there are on the table here three positions, at least. <laughs> One is, let's call it unfairly, the sort of microscopic reductionist who says, it has to be as low as you can go. Which is what John thinks I am. <laughs> Which is, I don't think he thinks I am. But that person in the end just has the total physics envy and wants to do quantum mechanics. Right. Okay? And they should. You know, <laughs> but they can't, so they do neuroscience or whatever they do. Okay. So, okay. so then you have the aggregated middle ground, which is the dynamical system, which says, you know, what we can do is we can, like Shadlin and others, which is very interesting, is we can project onto this manifold, which captures the information, it's dynamically sufficient. In other words, the observable, my eye goes left or right, uh, I get it just from tracking this, this, this. Yeah, but, but just to be very careful, just be very, very careful though, it's, there's a difference. I mean, I, I don't know what Mike has done most recently, but before what he did was quite traditional that he would record from single units see what they coded for and then derive a psychophysical model of diffusion to bound in this case with two parameters that were confirmed by the neural data there was no theory of the configuration now there is now now now, now we have right so now yes. i would say that it, it might comes up with a sort of you're right I, I, now that i think about it you know a dynamical system then right. I think it's closer to a neural pattern language. I think it begins to begins to get to being a first level explainer. Exactly. So so that's agree. I just want to introduce this third one. So you're right. So um, 
that's his point, this predictive low dimensional manifold that you move around on. Okay. And it's useful. It's great. I love it. But then the, the problem is it doesn't tell you that sort of stuff where you should move. It doesn't tell you what the system desires. Why can't you just be teleological? Wait, wait, wait. But what's so beautiful about the Hamiltonian, right? What's so beautiful about using information theory here is it tells you that something is being maximized under constraints. And that's a different language again. And so I, I, I guess to be a pluralist here, I think there are multiple different pattern languages, right? There's the lowest level, Lego building blocks. There's, as you say, John, these sort of dynamical system motifs. But there's a higher level yet, which tells you what the system is moving towards, an action principle. But I would say that, but I would say that once you get to that, you don't need. To, you may not need to talk about neurons at all. You can just. You might not. You can just you do it. This, this is exactly the mapping that I'm seeking, right? These sorts of levels. And John, you're enamored with dynamical systems. I'm not right enamored. Now, I'm not. I'm not. It's not as so much enamored. I'm just saying that as a functionalist who is much more interested in just looking at behaviorally inspired cost functions and psychological, mm -hmm. like errors and rewards and motivation. I was very much in that world. And you can build cost functions out of those behaviorally derived measures. Because of my work with David and thinking about this, I've been willing to see, especially after Mark told me that he began to intuit with these trajectories. It felt very Feynman-esque. You know, I think we all should be willing to change our minds. I thought to myself, hmm, it does seem as though he's beginning to think with a neurally derived object, which is different from the behaviorally derived objects that I work with. So I began to think that maybe we're going to enter an era where we can have two types of explanatory object on the same plane, More a, than two. A, a behaviorally derived one and a neurally mm. derived one where they're actually on a level playing field. You see, that, yeah. that's not something... I was really entertaining as much as I've been willing to working with David Barak and talking to the people who are doing this kind of work that maybe you, and I think maybe at the moment that's going to be the closest to your wish is that you have a hybrid functional object that is made out of behavioral variables and neural ones, but dynamical ones. So it doesn't have to be dynamics, but this is exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about that, to my level of satisfaction, would be some sort of bridging. Um, but it's not bridging because it's well, it, why it, I because they they are. It's a flat evidential landscape. In other words, they're both being used to explain. They have been derived. You know, deriving from behavior and deriving from neurons. You could say one came up vertically, the other one was horizontal. But the space they occupy is not vertical with respect to each other. I think they're. That's fine. Each other. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting that I, I, I just, I, maybe I wasn't, I have not been explaining myself well, and it's partly because it's an unknown territory, and so it's impossible to explain what you don't know, uh, how it's going to look, right? So I don't think it's going to be a dynamical systems state space trajectory that's going to make me feel like I, like that's going to be the bridge, some, you know, I'm going to say bridging again, but but some sort of mapping, some different level of understanding. And David was just saying that there's going to be multiple levels. How many levels are there going to be? How many do we need? As many infinite. I actually don't, I have to say, I don't think because of this feature. So it's interesting, this question, right? Because we do know that there are an infinite number of models if you're allowed to have an infinite number of parameters. So, right. So you can always fit a phenomenon 
that is fit with n with n plus one and up. <laughs> right? So um, I think it has to do with what satisfies our desire for understanding. And I mean, this gets to pedagogy. I mean, this is kind of a weird digression, but I've always thought that great teachers can explain the same idea in multiple different ways. Uh, I've just been reading a book called 99 Variations of, on a Proof, and it's, it's an allusion to a French novelist, Raymond Queneau's book called Exercises in Style. And he shows that you can solve this cubic equation, prove this cubic equation 99 different ways, right? And who knows if that's the upper bound, but they all illuminate what a cubic is and what a solution means. And different human beings on this planet will like those proofs to different degrees. I love that. And I feel that there's no reason to assume that there or, there's just one or two or three or four. There'll be multiple different levels. Although I think, is, I mean, that's like, like ultra-pragmatism. I would say that, that, that there will be a few favored levels for the best no effective theories that you yeah. can do pragmatic work with. You can transmit understanding. You can lead to new experiments, test new hypotheses. I mean, the best effective theory is the one that leads to the most fruitful number of conjectured hypotheses, right? So in other words, it, it seems to me that it would be very odd to not all converge on some cluster of effective theory levels that we'll all work I don't, with. I don't think that's true. I mean, I gave the example earlier of Newton. You know, the way you did this is you just take conic sections, you get circles, you get ellipses, you get hyperbolic orbits, and then you can do it algebraically and you can do it with calculus and it just turns out to be much more efficient than doing it geometrically. But I, I, I'm not sure. I think, John, I think by virtue of the preferential attachment nature of culture, that right, that there is a kind of um, winner-takes-all dynamic, there will be a few preferred formalisms, but I'm not sure they'll be preferred because they're the best in some objective sense. So in the case of, just to bring it back to heat again, where we all feel comfortable with this idea of, you know, what heat is relative to the collection of molecules. Uh, is that it? I mean, we all agree. That's fine. We're all comfortable with it. Are there more levels that need to be had that could be had? Will it be a better explanation? There might be. There might be more parsimonious means of describing it. I mean, it's true. Perhaps there's something about the simplicity of the phenomenon that doesn't permit. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. So that, yes, that's why the yes. analogy might not be right between brain and mind. Oh, so you take some, but you take the example that I gave of a cubic, right? It's mm -hmm. a pretty simple thing, right? And you can just multiply proofs. And so I don't know. I don't know what the best analogy is, actually. I think also, I mean, I, it's been, I, I read it a while back, but, you know, Rosa Cow and Dan Temmins wrote um, about, you know, the ventral pathway and does it count as an understanding rather than what we've been saying, which is just, you know, a, 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 an opaque fit, right? And I actually think they make a good case. But at one point, Rosa Cow and Dan Temmins talk about the contravariance principle, that the more, the more complex a phenomenon becomes, and I'm, I'm sure I'm mangling this, that the number of ways to actually get it done goes down, mm, mm. right? That, 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 that simple things can be done in a lot of ways. Complicated things, complex things, reduce the number of degrees of freedom you have available to get it built, and so one of the reasons they argue that there's genuine insight given from their work on the ventral stream 
And they make, you know, is that the best predictor of the neural responses in the ventral stream is now given from a deep neural network that was trained on images. In other words, it is kind of fascinating that if you want to predict, when you go into an area of the ventral stream, what the neurons will look like, you're going to get a better prediction from your deep neural network, right, than from what you think. So, So they argue that, first of all, it is at a level of abstraction because there are no neurons with biophysics in that system. But they then say that the reason why that may be happening is that things like object recognition in a layered system, there aren't that many ways to actually do it. But that's not true, though. I mean, I, there are, I don't quite understand what they're talking about. Because let me, let me jump in real quick here because yeah. I'm out of time just about. Yeah, so yes, let's good. end on this. But So, I, so I, David, let me give you the last word there. and. Um, uh, I'll just throw in, what if it's the case that object recognition is just easy? And and so there are like many different ways to do it. And then David, this is a complexity question. So I'll, I'll let you address the, the many ways versus few ways to do complex things. Well, I, I mean, I don't have a definitive answer. I simply <laughs> say that if you have some Boolean function, it can be realized in an infinite number of ways. I don't understand this idea that complex things have fewer ways of being. Well, I mean, like, I mean just sense. like convergent evolution that, you know, wings, right, that they end up having a similar shape. It's not like you can have... But they're realized totally different. Yeah, but their shape is well, whatever. Well, that's the function. Right. I don't know. I haven't read the paper, but I, I bet it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, great place to end, guys. So. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for putting up with us, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That was fun. Oh, no, thanks. I appreciate you guys piling on me there for a long time. That was great. Yeah. Um, I'm baking. Are these new Mexican photons? I've, you've seen uh, me moving like a yeah. sundial. <laughs> Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.